the question that we should be asking ourselves and the people around us every day isn't what do you do or what's going on. Um, it's how, how connected do you feel to others right now? And then it doesn't become about competition anymore. It just becomes about truth and alignment or even better, authenticity. Like if we had to make a choice, Benjamin, between good math scores and kindness, and this is a false choice, by the way, it's a false dichotomy, but what would we choose? Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we have a special episode for you today. Our guest is Luca Perry, who's the CEO of The Learning Future. He's also the host of a podcast by the same name, Learning Future, which you can find on your favorite platform. And the reason this is a special episode is because it's really the second part of a two-part series. I was lucky enough, fortunate enough to be the guest on Luca's podcast. And so this conversation that you're listening to is uh, certainly independent and can stand alone, um, but it is also the continuation of the conversation we have on Luca's podcast. And so some of the thoughts that have come, some of the strings that still needed to be pulled um, will be uh, unpacked and, and uh, looked at uh, in, in this podcast, but certainly the focus is more on Luca's thinking. Now, Luca is not only the CEO of Learning Future, but he's also uh, he's an executive member of uh, Karanga, the Global Alliance for Social Emotional Learning and Life Skills. He uh, has uh, consulted with government and with schools uh, all over Australia and the world. But the name of this episode is We're Human Beings, Not Human Doings. And so I don't want to go too much into what Luca does, but rather in terms of who he is. What comes across with Luca is his deep caring, his desire to connect, and really the inspiring thinking that comes from him. I really think this is uh, an episode that she'll enjoy uh, because Luca is able to convey very complex ideas in simple ways that, that we could all not only understand, but relate to on social emotional levels, on, on uh, human levels, on levels of folks who, who walk the, the planet with other living beings. I'm going to leave it to uh, my conversation with Luca. Please check out the other episode on uh, the Learning Future podcast, uh, which again, you can find on your affiliate platforms. And if you like the show, leave us a rating, uh, subscribe. Um, and um, here's my conversation with Luca. Well, hi, Luca. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, we've uh, had a conversation on your podcast, and uh, this is going to be part two, but uh, really focusing on some of your thoughts. Uh, and uh, you're incredibly well-read. You have uh, views and uh, um, things that, that really touch me and resonate with me uh, because it seems like you know, you, your, your thinking expands and, and, and goes well beyond uh, the norm. So I'm really uh, excited to hear about some of the things that, uh, that, that are going on in your head. I'll start off with the question, who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference? Uh, Benjamin, thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, I want to acknowledge that I'm on Ghana country here in Adelaide, South Australia. And that's a really important part of who I am because this is also where I grew up. Uh, I'm the son of immigrants that came to Australia in the 1960s. And I was the first in my family to be born in Australia. And so for me, my own journey is, has been, yeah, in terms of forging my own path in the world. It's the question I ask myself, Benjamin, not surprisingly, is who do I want to be? And then how do I continually aspire and try to act in alignment with that highest version of myself? You know most highest manifestation whatever the case might be uh 
I mean, more, more simply, I'm an educator, I'm a learner. I'm someone with a deep interest in human growth and development and in, in thriving and human flourishing generally. But I've also been exploring, and this was part of our conversation uh, on the Learning Future podcast, part one was also going beyond the idea of humanity. I think, you know, the concept of humanity is, uh, is something I'm incredibly interested in as a kind of humanist, but increasingly it's also understanding our connection with the natural world and you know i.e the universe at large you know our environment the ecosystems in which we function and so who am i well it's a very philosophical question i'm nothing if not you know a, a representative of the ecosystem that has helped to nurture and nourish me uh, intellectually spiritually emotionally socially physically so yeah educator innovator thinker ponderer provocateur maybe um i try not to wed myself to any single identity because i think we are in the time where we have to constantly unlearn and relearn uh as we reinvent ourselves and to me that's not scary that's incredibly exciting uh so what i do in the world is that i work largely if not solely, no, largely in education. So I'll work with school principals, uh, with district leaders, system leaders, and also with educators and on very delightful occasions with young people directly. I trained as a, as a teacher and I had, had a wonderful chapter of working in schools and in an education system. But for the last seven years, I've been kind of operating outside that, trying to support the growth and development of of educators themselves, how do we liberate them to be inspiring, uh, to feel their own sense of agency as they design and deliver really powerful learning experiences for themselves, for their colleagues, but also critically for the young people they serve. And so how do I try to make a difference? Well, to be honest, I try to be a good person. And I don't always get that right, as um, many of my failures would attest. But for me, it's about who we are, what we can do and what we know in that order of importance. So I try to make a difference and difference by, by choosing to be someone that demonstrates kindness in all interactions and that tries to dissolve my sense of ego. Uh, and I've been, you know, particularly as, as a young leader and someone that kind of was on a path of whatever that might mean. Uh, you know, I've done my own inner work with, you know, making this about me and now making it not about me. Um, the difference I try to make is, you know, I really fundamentally believe that our potential is an unknown unknown. It's, it's really something that we are very few of us are, are yet to fully realize. And I think particularly at a societal level or even an institutional level, be it at a single school, the amount of potential that we are in my view, wasting, uh, is just, it's just really heartbreaking. You know, so how do we enable all of us to live a fulfilled life, to have a powerful learning experience uh, and set us up to create and build on the amazing social progress that has been made by people far more eminent than myself? So that's the long answer to, I think, who I am, I, who I'm trying to be, um, what I do and, and how I'm trying to make a difference.
And what I really appreciate about uh, what you said is this idea of not being static. Your identity is not static. It, it depends on who you interact with, uh, how you see yourself. It's about you as an individual, as part of the ecosystem, as part of the natural world, as part of professional world. And I also appreciate the momentum that you're talking about, the trajectory that actually it is about becoming and it's through action. Uh, and, and I want to get to that uh, in a bit. Um, what I'd love to know is how do you define learning? This is a great question, Benjamin, and I'll try to stay away from anything too academic and give you a more of a felt experience for me. Uh, I think learning, learning is the vehicle through which we find and contribute our greatest self-expression. So for me, learning itself is a core human trait, but it's actually a core organic trait. You know, I think I am, I like to self describe as an action-based optimist, which is this idea that learning is, well, it's the idea that we can make, the world will be better, but only if we choose to make it so. And so learning, I think, is something that we are born with. It's something that can be nurtured and nourished and grown. And I think the great tragedy is that all of us just need to look at our, our youngest humans um, in our schools and in the world and see the playfulness and the joy and the curiosity, the inquisitiveness, uh, the desire to know, to experience, to taste, to touch, uh, to adventure. I, I really think learning is something that is with us and that we are, um, we are also deeply encouraged to make use of. And then my personal view also is that we've just, we still have these systems that were designed in a different paradigm in which they don't really give us a language of learning. Um, they, they give us a, a culture of schooling and everyone working in a school the vast, vast majority have an incredible moral purpose and there's wonderful work happening. And so the opportunity we have is how do we shift from, uh, how do we shift towards a world of learning and unlearning and relearning and then learning again, you know, a learning future, which is the premise of some of the work that, that we do. Um, and away from one where this kind of, there is this static model, as you say, uh, which a static and status-oriented model um, with a myth of meritocracy, um, as Michael Sandel would say. So, yeah, that's that's my best interpretation. I mean, I would say we construct our own sense of the world and as an applied linguist, I certainly think there's much to be said about our own cultural lens. Um, but learning for me is something, it's one of the highest pursuits of who we are as human beings. Uh, a life without learning, I think, is not just impossible, it would be a dire experience. What came out from what you said was the dynamic nature of learning. It's maybe, it's natural in us, it's not maybe, it is natural in us. It is about how we interact with the world. Uh, you brought up how we make sense of the world. Uh, it is about uh, uh, connecting with other things. And, and, and as you're saying, that dynamic process, that active process, and I'm linking that to what you said about how we become, which is an active process, if it is something that is so natural, how do you think that this static model of education, maybe we could unpack a little bit what we mean by what you mean by static, 
how did this static model of education come about if since you know time eternal learning has been a dynamic process i think a few things have happened benjamin and again there are educational historians that would speak more eloquently than me on this topic specifically but i think what we've done is we have cleaved away at a really macro level who we are as human beings and we've effectively created our own hidden grammar as it's spoken about uh, and that is to say that we have really delved into this primacy of the cognitive as a, a colleague valerie hannon of mine would describe it you know we have really become obsessed with academics with logic with spreadsheets with what we might con consider a progress narrative and that's a narrative to which I've, i fully subscribe i must say you know i think we should invent and we should use the scientific method really powerfully and we should also think as holistically as possible i mean my my view is actually that we have divided things that were, are indivisible um, in our attempts to understand the world. And so, for example, I mean, to think that we can judge, and it is a judgment, judge the value of a human being, of a young person, based on a single number, for me, seems completely perverse. And, you know, should, uh, I don't know, aliens or whatever come and visit us, some, some hypothesis here, you know, I think they'd look at some of the systems we'd build and they say, well, why on earth would you do that? So a lot of my work, really my calling is trying to, to bring us back to a deeper connected understanding of who we are as human beings. And I have to say that it's been my own journey in education. The first chapter of which, you know, six years I spent learning from First Nations here in, in Australia, in the central part of Australia, the central desert, the Anangu, and looking at how they thought conceived their ontology their epistemology you know their value systems their systems of knowledge that were so different to my own kind of rather western greek welsh hybrid um view that i had you know so it's not just invention for me it's also remembering because i think we have forgotten something in this in this desire to invent and to create and to conquer and to quest and to colonize frankly as well i think is all part of this same movement uh, you know, how do we move into those deeper, how do we remember the deeper parts of what make us human? You know, the kindness, the character traits, the things that existed a century ago in education systems that we've kind of become obsessed with this academic piece. And I just think we should remain obsessed with academics, but only if we're obsessed with the social development, the emotional development, the spiritual or purpose development, and the physical development of our young people and ourselves. Because this life I don't think is about, you know, what we know or what we can do. It's about who we are and then how, how we show up in the world. And then, yes, let's build the skill sets that are valuable and useful. And absolutely, let's go into the most rigorous intellectual environments in academies, in universities, to try to deeply understand this remarkable world in which we live. So that's, I think this is, I, I really think it's about us just trying to measure and to weigh, you know, we could think about different movements of psychology, for example, like behaviorism, you know, I'm far more of a humanistic psychologist, if anything, uh, more than a behaviorist, because I, I think it's about all the aspects of make, that make us who we are. And I think there's a real depth that we lose 
in the kind of fast-paced attention economy, uh, information-saturated world in which we live. I want to pick up on this idea of identity to which you alluded, but also specifically in terms of this idea of, of division and how we might be dividing what shouldn't be divided or can't be divided, but somehow we've, we've, we've made those connections. There's this Cartesian duality of separating mind, reason, and uh, body, spirit, whatever we, we might we want to talk about. And that happens on an individual level. But you also brought up First Nations peoples. And uh, I was listening to a podcast yesterday from a guy, or that was, guess was a guy from Harvard, evolutionary biologist, whose name I can't remember, of course. But he was saying that in the Western world, the weird world of Western educated, industrialized, rich, uh, and democratic peoples, um, we have uh, a mentality where, where if you ask someone, uh, who are you, the, the, the first reaction they have immediate is, I'm 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 funny or I'm a teacher or, or something about them. But in other peoples, perhaps in more traditional societies, and I mean traditional um, in, in, in not, uh, and we talked about this on, on the Learning Futures podcast, not, not in terms of the tension between tradition and, and progress, but but the ones that haven't necessarily um, uh, gone through the area of, of industrialization and, and, and changed the extent that we have in, in other parts of the world. But in, in, in First Nations, indigenous peoples, it's more about where we come from in terms of where we are in relation to the earth. I know Joanne McKechnie, a good friend of yours, speaks of that. She, she mentioned that on your podcast as well, uh, who our family are. Where does this, how, how do we reconcile these different identities that we have, both personal identities, our identities with society, with the community? How do we navigate these and, and how can we rebuild our connections to ourselves and to others and of course to the planet? Mm. That's a wonderful question. And yes, Joanne, you know, our mutual friend speaks so beautiful, uh, so beautifully about this. And you can look at and see the rituals that still exist across humankind and think, what have we lost ultimately uh, in our desire to kind of know and to compartmentalize? You're absolutely right. I mean, for me, I mean, and... Uh, I mean, Māori or, in, you know, in my experience in working alongside First Nation peoples here in Australia, when you ask them a question like, well, who are you? They'll say, well, I'm from this country. This is my tribe. Uh, I'm the daughter of this person. You know, for us, because the, the worst thing is that we just say, well, what do you do <laughs> in, um, you know, in these social environments and, you know, immediately creates a status hierarchy, you know, because if you say, well, I'm a janitor, I'm a cleaner, or if I'm a teacher, sadly, people go like, oh, as opposed to, well, I'm, I work in venture capital, or I'm an investment banker, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer. I, there's just so much, you know, I really, I think part of our opportunity is to dissolve that hierarchy completely and realize that it's not a hierarchy. It can't be. It's actually an ecosystem. It's, you know, we want a diversity. Like imagine a world without diversity linguistic diversity, cultural diversity. I mean, it would just be the most bland, saddening experience for everyone, in my view. I think there's something inherently divine about diversity in all its forms. And so I do think this is about us slowing down and listening for a change, if I may say, to what First Nations people can tell us, can show us, and have been doing in the case of this country, which is my home, for at a minimum 65,000 years. And, and that is how to live sustainably uh, 
within a particular environment and to think ecosystemically, to talk to the land, to have a deep connection to place, to rio the bioregionality of place is something that we've completely lost. And I lost, frankly, in for many years of my life as I was gallivanting around on an airplane. You know, well, my home is my backpack. Well, yes, that's very awesome to say, but it's actually, what is the deeper question? Um, yeah, and so I think to your initial question, from which I have departed somewhat, I, I think the idea of identity is something that we must pay more attention to. And we should be asking better questions in classrooms, in schools, in companies, in organizations. And again, we just need to get the evidence on psychological safety, the work that's coming out in diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, the, the, the popular movements and the outrage, the rightful out, outrage that where we have, you know, fellow human beings treating each other in ways that don't just dehumanize, but that end in death. And so there's got to be a better way to do that. And I think it comes down to hold our identity and holding multiple selves and not needing to reconcile those selves, I think, Benjamin, as well. I think it's okay. I mean, and I learned this, again, working and, and trying my best to teach uh, uh young people. Who was I to say that what success was to a student, you know, from a, a very different cultural background to myself? All I could do was try to illuminate the possibilities for different selves, you know, a Western self, uh, a First Nation self, uh, a Pigeon Jada speaking self, and an athletic self. So I really think if we talk about expansion, about skills for the future, about a life of learning, but if we also want to talk about consciousness development or self-development, I really think it's how do we expand ourselves so that we can hold all these multiple parts and realize that together they make us whole and not to you know not to have to hide any particular one of those and again i need to preface that you know i'm a white i'm a white man of greek and welsh heritage uh and so many of the intersectionalities uh that that many other people experience i do not and so it makes it even more critical for me to be aware of how people need to hide who they are when they walk into a classroom, into a school, into a company, into a, a public space. And until we get to the point where everyone feels they can just be their highest self-expression, be truly who they are and who they feel themselves to be, we all still have more work to do. And this goes back to, again, the conversation we had about how this diversity, um, we, we, that these multiple identities sometimes hide the fact that we have a common identity and that's to be human or to be a member of, a, of the planet or to live in a community. Um, and, and we have to navigate these differences uh, by thinking about the commonalities that, that, that might come about. Uh, that's, that's very true. And I, I think maybe we just haven't, maybe we've lost part of our imagination for us to think. I mean, if we, if we even go back to first principles about an individual and the individualistic paradigm in which a lot of the Western world, the weird world, which I quite like that acronym, I have to say, uh, functions. It, it's kind of, it's, it's farcical to think that any single one of us is responsible for our own success or that we could do anything alone. I mean, it's, it's perplexing actually, but I mean, it makes sense because it's simple. It keeps things clearer, 
to think that we all ourselves. But this is a wonderful book actually by Tom, I think it's Tom Oliver, uh, called The Self-Delusion, which is a really fascinating read, uh, which I read in lockdown last year. And it just talks about, you know, even the fact that we think our, our skin is kind of where we are. Um, I mean, that's, that's helpful for us to understand that concept, but it doesn't really, even if we go into the quantum world around fields and states, you know, and we spoke a little bit about this in our previous conversation, uh, that's really the cutting edge of scientific inquiry. You know, what is the energetic field that each of us has, the electromagnetic resonance? You know, these are, these are ideas that science is now exploring, you know, in earnest. Um, and so I think... As you say, it's the uh, it's this idea of the holon, right? Which I like, which is a it's a part which is whole, but it's also part of something larger. And so this is how I think we should all think about ourselves, and particularly in the era of COVID, is that we are in this all together. And in, actually, it's not just us as humans; it's our entire bio collective, uh, as you would say, Benjamin, which is a wonderful term. Um, yeah. And so again, how do we move from the ego system to the ecosystem, which is a wonderful framing that I learned from Otto Sharma out of MIT in theory you practice, you know, um, how do we go from a growth mindset to a benefit mindset, which is wonderful work from Ash Buchanan uh, and Jack Grieg out of Melbourne. You know, these, these, I think are really, I mean, these are just words that I'm using, but I think they really do show the framing that we can have. And you know, if I could change one thing about our world, it would actually be what we believe. But of course, that's that's the that's the real game in anything, because it's our mental models that actually determine all of our behaviors and everything else. How do we feel about ourselves? What do we believe to be true about the world? What is the purpose of education? What is success in society in a lifetime? And you know, I don't think it'd be surprising for you to know I, I'm quite philosophical you know I've, I've read widely a lot of that is in his philosophy and spirituality alongside you know educational literature and leadership literature etc uh, psychology um, at large and I'm interested in that because it's I'm interested most in the human experience uh, and increasingly I'm interested in in kind of the experiences that we have when connected with others and so I mean I'll end this long answer on this Benjamin I mean the, the question that we should be asking ourselves and the people around us every day isn't what do you do or what's going on. Um, it's how, how connected do you feel to others right now? How, how do you feel emotionally? And, and I'm borrowing this from uh, this question from uh, Melody Potts-Rosvia who uh, runs Teach for Australia. And she said in a conversation we had, um, you know, this wonderful uh, community in Africa that says, are the children well in a greeting? And I mean, that just shows a different mental model to me. I'm like, hey, tell me about your investments. Like, how's the company going? Like, are you smashing it? As opposed to like, well, are the children well? How, how is our society functioning? Are we treating each other in, in humanizing, uplifting ways? Or are we demeaning each other? So I, I think the quality of our questions uh, is just so, and I know that you agree with me on this because we spoke about this in part one, you know, the quality of our, our questions is so critical. I think the answers matter, but they don't matter as much as the questions we ask because we have to be asking the right question set. 
I can't think of any wiser words that I've heard in, in a long, long time. Um, there's a lot that you said, and I'm going to try to unpack it and maybe go step by step. And the first thing I want to bring up is, is Michael Sandel and the meritocracy. And the reason I do is because you evoked um, the notion that we need to be okay in our diversity, okay in the voices that we bring, uh, finding um, uh, success for ourselves rather than being told what that is. And I'm, I, I like to get your views and your ideas on, on meritocracy, the meritocratic trap, what that means, and, and have that be a springboard to um, this idea of, of connecting to others and, 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 and your views on whether or not meritocracy, where it slows down or, or speeds up or, or, or how it frames our ability to connect with others. Yeah, great question. Benjamin, I'll attempt my best. I, I think that the fundamental trap of meritocracy is that it's, it's often so founded on the individual. It's this idea that that individual has been successful and they've done so on merit. And it's just not, I mean, the fact that any tech company right now that's successful and we say, look how successful they were. I mean, so many of the technologies were actually funded by the public sphere you know wi-fi for example was actually invented here in australia um by the csiro which is our government you know research body so i i think when it comes to merit it's just such an incomplete picture and i think we need to pick up different threads here around privilege for example which is incredibly important to look at uh you know advantage social capital you know and I've had people ask me the question, like, how, how have you been successful? Like, why are you successful? And I'm like, I, I kind of, the question makes me deeply uncomfortable at one level because A, it's, I don't think of myself as seeking success anymore. There definitely was a version of me as a younger man. who was like, I'm going to go and quest and, you know, do things and I don't know, build something. Uh, it's just such an incomplete question because how can anyone truly have made it if any other human being any one part of the group is languishing i just can't see that and again this is i've been deeply informed by my work with other cultures around the world that have a, a collectivist view as opposed to this individual view so that's the first point i would make is that the merit the merit trap just becomes so focused on the individual the second point i think is that it's merit, it's merit in what? Um, again, you know, and I think merit works only when we standardize because merit has a competitive nature to it in its current articulation. I think, you know, it's, well, you, were, you Benjamin were better than Luca and that's why you got that job on merit. And that might be true for that specific skill set in terms of skill matching or whatever the case might be, but it's still an adversarial system in some way. And I'm just really interested in how do we move from standardization to true personalization in which it's, you know, it's not, it's just so much more nuanced to make these types of judgments as opposed to a carte blanche. You got 10, you got a hundred on the test and you got 70 on the test. So your success and you're a failure and on merit, you deserve this and you don't deserve this. I think all of us are worthy as human beings by the fact that we exist. Um, and this is why I'm really interested in ideas like dignity rather than respect because respect is earned, but dignity is actually, it's actually a belief without needing to know 
to have dignity means that everyone has a has a base value in their life. So I think interesting with merit, I think the challenge that we have, particularly in our work in, in education, is how do we create one ecosystem? How do we move from this idea of one standard to the idea of a one ecosystem and then have as many journeys within it that are rigorous and in which there is assessment and there is profound growth and challenge, uh, always in a way where people can show up as their whole selves. Uh, and then, of course, that those paths can weave in whichever way they want to with, with people understanding their own sense of individual agency and then really critically collective agency. So this, I think those are the two reflections I would have on merit. I mean, I'm still only halfway through to really unpacking my own views on this, but I think it's also why why should we celebrate just one? We do this all the time. We should celebrate people that have worked incredibly hard and have got a perfect score, for example. And yes, we should give their teachers a bottle of champagne, which some schools do. You know, well done. You know, your student got 20 out of 20 in your subject. That's a fantastic achievement. And it's also why we should also pay attention to learning more than grades because it's the growth that we're most interested in because that's the value add, that's the impact and the last thing I'll say is just a really simple and powerful video on this and I'm not sure the group that did it but it's having all these young people line up on a line and then a question be asked and if the answer is yes that young person takes a step forward and this is a diverse group of young people in the United States and the question were things like do, did you grow up in a two-parent household? Great. Did you never have to worry about food being on the table for you? Take a step forward. And of course, what you notice is that in this group of, say, 40, 50 young people, some of them did not take a single step forward and others have stepped forward all the time. And of course, the finish line is, is you know, 20 meters away from those that have taken all these steps forward. So, of course, they win the race. Now, if we're, if we're not careful, we'll think that they deserve to win it more. They didn't. They just had a sense of advantage. It's not to feel guilty for that advantage, but it's to acknowledge, you know, that everyone is coming from a different place. And then how do we move not just not to equality, but to equity in a space that so we can have every person really share their unique potential to do extraordinary things, to do extraordinary work, to invent, to create to connect, to compel, to inspire while they're in this world. And that I think is, I think that's me weaving in as best as I can my own views on, on merit and meritocracy. And so now we have a system that's actually pretty straightforward. You get a test, get a score, the piece of paper goes somewhere, we rank people, it's very simple. It's actually quite pleasant, I'm sure, for the assessor because or the, the person who selects because they could just draw a line under 60 or under 70 and, and it makes life easy. But how, on a more practical level, can we go about showcasing what people have achieved, what kind of people they are, how they feel inside, how they've contributed, how they've connected? And that's at an individual level. What if we ask the same question as a group, as a class, as an organization? How do we go about showcasing these things in order to, to still be able to select? Because until we have infinite resources, there's still going to be a finite amount of places at university, at jobs, uh, within clubs, within communities, unless we go online, in which case, you know, uh, everything is, you know, it, it might be a different story because there's no incremental cost to adding a seat. But but I, I think you see what I'm trying to say, that that how do we go about showcasing it in different ways that, that are going to be, that are going to represent 
some of these sophistications? Mm. Well, I'll try to start and stay as practical as possible. I think it just means expanding the opportunity for people to show who they are, what they know and what they can do. I think it's that, that, that really, I think is what we need to look at. And the way that we currently recognize and credential importantly, uh, is just too narrow. And that's not a critique of the people working in credentialing systems or in admissions programs and universities. It's just, we've just constantly, we have all inherited from the past, the present moment. So the big question for us is how then do we move forward? So for example, uh, I think it's, I just think it's crazy. Um, I'll use a better term. Uh, I think it's just completely unacceptable that we have an enormous proportion of young people that leave a learning environment like a school feeling like they're a failure. And that to me shows that we have not broadened yet across the entire system everyone's experiences of what a learning environment should be for you know everyone should leave and i agree with you the point isn't like we want everyone to now be a doctor everyone to be a lawyer no no no. it's about the diversity of our character traits of our own interests of our agency that drives our passion over time and i'm really interested in this idea that passion comes after an activity you know so we should live as diversely as possible, you know, develop our range, as David Epstein would say, a brilliant book I commend to everyone. Uh, you know, try to become the kind of neo-generalist and then if we choose to be the hyper-specialist, we can do that. So I, I think it means moving away from the testing regime as it currently stands, or at least integrating that into something larger, which would be a learner profile, uh, for example, um, a transcript that demonstrates mastery and there's some work from Mastery Transcript Consortium, which is a group now of 400 odd schools in the United States and with a range of international partners they started last year here in Australia as well. And the idea here is how do we reinvent the way that we recognize learning? Because it's the recognition of learning. If, if what you know and what you can do and who you are is not recognized, uh, you're going to feel like a failure anyway. And Again, having worked at a cultural and linguistic interface in some of my work in education, you know, we've got a very westernized recognition system and you've got a, a completely different culture and, and language set um, in some parts of Australia. In, of course, in all parts of the world, this is the case. You know, it's trying to work out, well, actually, do these match at all? Like, how do we, how do we try to bring in who these community wants to be? into the way that we recognize at a broader level. So my, my view is that we're going to end up with, and technology will help us get there, the right type, importantly, the right type of edge tech will actually liberate learners and liberate teachers who work so incredibly hard and it's just straddled by so, so much pressure and expectation now to do the impossible. And certainly, you know, school leaders, it's the, definitely the case as well. How do we just create this, this liberating environment where every single person has their own education passport? I don't want to use the vaccine passport analogy here because it's slightly controversial, but, um, but yeah, has their own passport and that own passport, that profile, that is their sense of not just, oh, here's what I can do. Here's my knowledge. Like, here's my academic transcript of what I know, but this is who I am. 
Like here are the things I care about. Here's the work that I've done in the community. Here's the the video community, gaming communities to which I belong. Uh, here's my sport. Here's my community. I'm a I'm a carer at home. You know, like none of these things are currently picked up. And so I think that's to me speaks to a, a huge opportunity. Um, and of course, the challenge then for us, Benjamin, becomes well, how do we do that in a way that's trusted and valid? And I'm working directly on a few projects that are trying to investigate that and to prototype ways that we can do that to create packs between institutions so that not so that, you know, the poor admissions team at a university has to go through, you know, 100,000 pages of profiles, but, but just so that a way we can just get better matches. And then it doesn't become about competition anymore. It just becomes about truth and alignment or even better authenticity you know someone feels that authentically they can go this way that's brilliant i mean we know that i think it's it's one third of secondary students choose to study a subject that they think they'll get a better grade in than the one they're truly passionate about now i i just if we stop for a moment just think about that i just feel like that is a, just a great example of what we're missing out on. We're missing out on amazing generations of dancers and artists, of potentially scientists, you know, of, you know, humanists, whatever it is. Like, it, how do we just align people to their true passion? Um, and again, this is not about just a laissez-faire, choose your own adventure, let's just like create a learning circus. It's about being, always being rigorous, but never rigid. It's seeking, you know, for authenticity rather than kind of, superficial acceptance you know i think that's the journey that that we're going on and so that's the the individual journey and then of course it's about the group identity who do we choose to be together and i think that's the that's where we are right now in the world we're at this tipping point we can either decide to go alone and think that we're all running our own race and that what we do over here in australia doesn't impact the globe or what i do as an individual over there doesn't impact this group or the social group uh I think this is a really pivotal moment. I mean, every moment is pivotal. Um, and especially right now, as we sense our, you know, like a virus, something that's invisible to our eye can just wreak such havoc on our world. I think it gives us, it should give us pause to think about well, who do we want to be and how do we enable everyone to be who they want to be in this world as part of a broader group. And you brought up the word contribution. Uh, and I keep thinking of that word contribution when you brought up competition, uh, individuality, and, 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 um, and, and thinking about it in terms of this, this selection process based on scores. Like, how does contribution come into play to this? How do we foster um, a culture of contribution where, where it is about seeing ourselves as part of a greater whole? And going back to maybe some, some uh, ancient wisdom, some Buddhism here about, about if you do good to yourself, why, why would you do why could you do anything but good for the world since we are all connected? Um, and, and you brought up quantum physics. And we could talk about entanglement and fields, but 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 it, it, it does reach that that level of connection that we're all sh- not just sharing the same planet. We have the same interests, but there are some um, some 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 scientific reasons to think that we're connected and therefore contributing to others also contributes to our own welfare. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Uh, I mean, Jojo McKee can talk so much about this idea of contribution and I really like her articulations of it. Uh, For me, I think it's, again, coming back to that question, what is success for us? 
I mean, it's curious that we have, you know, the Forbes rich list that comes out, you know, and then we look at that and go, oh, wow, okay, Jeff Bezos now has $190 billion as of our conversation today. But good for him. What could he do with that? Oh, no, he's going to go to space. Okay, great. He can shoot himself in space. And again, I'm a massive space nerd. I love space. I love um, astrophysics and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I also think where's the contribution list? I mean, I think that maybe the Nobel is as close as we get to it. You know, I really think rather than us obsessing about the Forbes rich list, it's like who's made the biggest contribution to the world while they're here? And you can do that being wealthy, but you can also do that um, by being a community change maker, by being someone that dedicates their life to the education of young people in a particular part of the world, who works as a, as a palliative care nurse, you know, and she or he, you know, sees people off in their final moments in this world. I mean, I really think this is the deepest question is what do we want success to be? And that then challenges a whole set of paradigms that we have. The growth paradigm for one is it was one that we should challenge. Not because growth is inherently bad, but because unbridled growth almost definitely is. I mean, we quite literally call it cancer in our own bodies. And so this infinite growth trajectory that our world seems obsessed with from an economic market, free market perspective, I think is it's hugely problematic. And it's changing, I think, with donor economics or with, you know, ESG, you know, environmental social governance um, considerations that big corporations are now taking, on to account, taking into account. I mean, we don't need to just live sustainably. We need to live in a regenerative way um, because I just think we're not... Yeah, we're not going to get out of this unless we really think about our sense of contribution. And wouldn't that just be amazing, Benjamin, that like the way that we look at awards, the way that we look at recognition. I mean, again, I'm an enormous lover of sport and I love the competition of sport. And it's also what do those amazing athletes contribute outside of that role? You know, that, that I think is as important as their on-field performance is who they choose to be in the world, not just what they can do with their phenomenal skill in whatever industry. So I think again, it, and maybe this is a bit of a cop out, but just asking better questions, I think really gets us to a different place of understanding. And I mean, for me on my own journey in self-awareness, I, I really have just become so taken by the potential of elevating the social and the emotional dimensions of what makes us who we are. Because when we start to do that, it's it's not that we care less, but we care equally about the different contributions that we make. I, my contribution was that I did really well on this test. Well, a social contribution would be I demonstrated kindness. I was able to take perspective. And because of that, I collaborated in this way and we created this new thing that solved a problem for someone. You know, An emotional contribution would be able to show your own vulnerability or to be able to hold someone else's vulnerability in a way where they can, you know, they can, honestly express how they're feeling and in, and by doing that that enables them to regulate their own emotional state and therefore come back to a place a centered place where they can be a great leader a great teacher a great learner a great parent so i don't have a simple answer for this one benjamin but because oh, all my answers are really let's ask better questions um but i do i do really think that it's a question for leadership as well if we and maybe this is happening. If we have a new generation 
of emerging leaders who actually have this view. And I mean, my own generation, millennial generation, I think we, we do think in these different terms and certainly the digital natives that come after us uh, are thinking even more, even though they're hopelessly distracted by um, you know, the amygdala hijacking products that are in, in, uh, in the digital space. They care deeply about the world and they actually care deeply about each other. Uh, so I, I am hopeful that when we have leaders that stand up and are, tr- are being radically brave, you know, I, I think there will be, we can look to those people and that can give us all the models we follow. And maybe the future leaders uh, might come out of what we talked about last time. And it's been an idea that's been in my head for since, since we talked uh, about this, uh, this curriculum of kindness. Um, and, and we brought up, what would that look like? Um, nothing's in stone. It's just an idea out there. But, but what are your thoughts? What would a curriculum of kindness in a school or even beyond school in, in say, maybe the life experiences that we have, what would that look like? Yeah, it's such a great it's such a great question. And again, I, I would say that many, many schools have curricula for kindness, but they're just implicit. They're not explicit. And, you know, and, uh, you know, again, psychology nerd, you know, Jung said famously, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will drive our life and we will call it fate. And so it's just bringing to our point of awareness why this matters so deeply. Uh, practically, I mean, some of my good friends and colleagues at Dream a Dream Foundation and Labia Foundation and a set of others in, in New Delhi deployed the happiness curriculum for 1.1 million children and trained every single teacher, the hundreds of thousands of teachers in a stadium approach, pre-COVID, by the way, I would add, uh, to help deploy and deliver this curriculum. 45 minutes mandatory at the beginning of every day that focuses on mindfulness, compassion, and a third, which I will forget in this moment. I mean, that's, that's mandated. That is, that's an education, that's political decision-making, saying we're going to run a thing called the happiness curriculum. We're going to pull out a bit of the reading and writing and science and math time. And we're actually going to focus on this. And they're seeing some pretty remarkable results. You know, so, and that, I mean, that's one way to go is you create, you, you divvy time and you put 45 minutes. Of course, the, the challenge is you don't want happiness or kindness just to be taught then and then everyone reverts back to kind of this zero-sum competitive <laughs> world. But it is absolutely a starting point. The gold standard for me in terms of all curricula is, is program meets practice meets philosophy. You know, what's the underlying philosophy? What's the program that we can put in place that builds everyone's capacity and knowledge? And then how does that then emerge into practice, which then becomes fused into what the organization is at its core, how it feels when you walk into it, all of the different interactions, the the micro behaviors, which are also just behaviors that happen to be small. You know, these, I, I really think that, that that is the challenge for all of us is the gold standard of philosophy we have to get right should we focus like if we had to make a choice benjamin between good math scores and kindness and this is a false choice by the way it's a false dichotomy but what would we choose and until we say we'll choose kindness we're not going to go far enough because we'll say we'll do maths but we'll we'll add something we'll just tack on a social emotional learning program we'll do i don't know mindful monday 
afternoons. And I'm all for Mindful Monday. Uh, but I'm just thinking again more and more about the Venn diagram rather than the spreadsheet. And this, I think, is the beauty of us. Uh, it's the beauty of human development of working and learning systems is that we, everything is interwoven. And it comes back to our earlier conversation. We try to divide things that are potentially indivisible. And why do we do that? Because we are obsessed with the compartmentalized academic understanding of the world. And until we can kind of couple that important understanding with the felt experience, you know, we can believe how, goodness, wouldn't it be something if we could believe what teachers say about their own students? And we would just take that, just like we believe doctors or the mechanic about, you know, and an educator could say, uh, my judgment is this on this learner. But no, no, we need to run standardized assessment across a whole range of things for the teachers to be believed. And I think that's also just a question around trust and the status that educators have in our world and the impacts of the global education reform movement, for example, that Parsi Seilberg so beautifully talks to. You know, this idea we're trying to measure everything. Well, not everything that matters can be measured. And sometimes we measure things even if they're expressly against the mission of the organization because it gives us something that we feel, makes us feel good. Uh, I mean, there's some wonderful, wonderful insights from that world. So again, another very long answer. Um, better questions. You know, what life do you want to leave? Uh, what's at the end of your time at school, at the end of your time at this company, the end of your time as a teacher, when you retire, you move to another industry or another role. What do you want people to say about the person you were, you are, and the impact that you made? I think that's, that's a pretty good question because that's talking about contribution, not necessarily talking about competition. And it doesn't, that framing doesn't, doesn't lend itself easily to that either. And I think I heard you somewhere say that we need to live the life of uh, asking our question, how can we become a better ancestor? Um, which I thought was very powerful and brought back this idea of regeneration. I mean, it's a beautiful sentiment. And of course, that's something that I've taken from First Nations. Again, like it's not something that's necessarily part of my own cultural background, uh, but many First Nations all over the world talk about seven generation thinking for example, and a colleague of mine, Haley Maguire, you know, speaks about this beautifully. You know, it's, well, actually in seven generations time, what impact will I have had on, on my seven generation ancestors? For us, it's kind of accumulate everything <laughs> in this lifetime and yeah, maybe pass it on to your kids. I mean, I'm being, I'm being a bit satirical here and, and cynical. It's, which don't lend themselves to my personality at all, frankly, but being a good ancestor is a beautiful way to understand contribution. Um, the other way that, and I, again, I've, have taken this from some wonderful work, particularly out of the, U, the United States uh, in student empowerment, is we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. Like we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. And, you know, when you drive past, I went to the cemetery to visit my Papua Nyaya, my Greek grandparents and grandma, and grandma you know, my Welsh, um, Irish grandparents. And you know, I was sitting there at the headstone thinking, you know, I am their wildest dreams. And so who do I choose to be? And then how do I be a good ancestor for the people that come after me if I choose to have children, which I don't currently have? Uh, that's such a powerful way to understand it. It's also, by the way, a great book by Roman 
Kavisic, I can't get his last name wrong, who is the um, lesser known partner of Professor Kate Raworth, who wrote Donut Economics and is at Oxford as a professor. And so the two of them are a bit of a power couple, but it's a beautiful, beautiful way to understand um, contribution, as you say. Listen, Luca, thank you so much. I, I'm going to leave it open now to maybe some thoughts or things you're working on or anything that's on your mind currently or might be on your mind uh, in, in the near future. Um, what, what's in your head? What's in your heart? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> um, I'll say simply this. The journey that I'm on is, is asking a question before I ask any other question, which is, who do I want to be? And then it's what do I want to be able to do and what do I want to know? You know, and this idea that we're human beings, we're not human doings, and yet we're so weighed, judged, um, envied for our actions, our, you know, what we do. And so it's how do we think as, about who we want to be? And so that's just what I'd encourage all of us, including myself, to can keep considering you are not what you do you are not what you think you are not even your emotional state it's part of emotional intelligence here right you can disassociate from your emotions and you should you know you are not sad you are feeling sad because you are not sadness you know so i would just think as i try to do about what is the path you want to walk who do you want to be and then powerfully what is it you want to do and what do you want to learn and know and contribute based on that and so that's the lens my current lens uh, through which i'm seeing the world and that gets me very excited about a great many things of a great many knowledge sets a great many skill sets but also about the potential that each of us has to try to make a contribution and leave an impact on our world thank you so much thanks so much for your time i love hearing your thoughts and uh, uh you really you know just Get me excited about a lot of things. I wanted to explore a lot of things, and and, and more than anything, you pique my curiosity, which which I think is a is a tremendous gift. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host Benjamin Ford. I can't wait to continue conversations with Luca. Uh, we promised each other we'd speak about once a month, uh, give or take, uh, and maybe even have a part three. Um, there's a lot that, that we connect on, and uh, and uh, I'm really um, uh, invigorated, energized, and. Uh, nourished by these conversations i hope you have been too again if you like this podcast subscribe leave us some stars uh, you can always check out our blog on www.coconut-thinking.design and leave a comment uh, in the meantime we've got uh, some uh, exciting guests uh, including um, jane bryant who used to be the uh, ceo of the ken robinson foundation um, as well as um, uh, really now she spearheads um, creativity and the arts and we'll talk about how the arts as centralized can really be a powerful vehicle for learning, for expression, uh, and for caring for oneself and, and the world. Anyways, again, www.coconut-thinking.design and we will see each other soon, I hope.